0: Hello and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, where we have been learning more creativity, science, nonfiction, books. We're trying to grow as people and also having groups of people on the show, discussion of different sorts, bringing people back, such as in this case, we are having on a past guest who is returning with new material. It's nice to have regulars on the show. Needs no introduction, but I will afterwards. Dr. Susan Leoto, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Armin. It's really great, and it's particularly an honor to be back for the third time.
0: We are honored to have you back on here. It's a wonderful thing. You have been on this show previously with this book, The Power of Ethics, a wonderful one, a collaboration of ethical proportions and brought us into the ethics category. I haven't really covered ethics before that. And now you are onward with a new book. But before I mention that book, I would like to... Uh, Give a little backstory, description of sorts, if you will, for the audience. You are the founder and managing director of Susan Leoto and Associates Limited, which advises global leaders and corporate, non-profit, academic, and governmental institutions internationally on complex ethics matters. You have the Ethics Incubator, which is a non-profit as well. You have had many discussions with notable individuals, experienced individuals. I watched a lot of them, actually. They're great. They're on YouTube and who knows elsewhere. And you are the chair of council of the London School of Economics and Political Science. You wrote The Power of Ethics, that book I just showcased. And you have, also you teach at Stanford, a cutting edge course. But you have a new book in the world, this book right here, The Little Book of Big Ethical Questions. This is your next one. You do a wide variety of things. Tell us what got you into writing this one, which is littler than this one.
1: Well, as you know, Armin, uh, from our previous discussions, my personal mission and a mission that infiltrates all of my professional work, my teaching, my advising, my board service, is what I call democratizing ethics. And by that, I mean making ethical decision making available to people from all walks of life, not just people who have the privilege of higher education. Uh, and so this book is uh, designed to be very accessible. It's a Q&A format. So on the left side of the page, I set up a scenario and ask a question. And on the right side, I give some thoughts about, you know, how I might think about it, about how this question um, might relate to other questions that we face. And it's organized um, by themes. So there are themes like the workplace or health or technology or politics and civic duty or friends and family. Uh, And um, you don't have to read the book in any particular order. You can skip around questions. You can skip around chapters, and it's meant to be a whole series of conversation starters, either with others or even conversations with ourselves about what do we think our positions really are on certain things. Or um, it can even be seen as a bit of a as a bit of a puzzle.
0: One thing I enjoy about this, it is like a puzzle, like figuring out the pieces. I enjoyed as I was reading it. This stuck out to me is that I kept remembering certain scenarios. So. Each time I was reading one question and its answer and its description, uh, I would think of a past example in my life. It made me think of times when, oh, I had to make this decision that I forgot about from two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. It's a specific category. And then I realized how vital this category is because I've noticed those are the only things I really focused on over the years because I'm more of a bigger picture thinker. And so like, oh, would this be the thing to do at that time or would it not? And what do all other people do there? What fits? It makes you think about stories. Do you think about, did stories lead to writing each of the sections of the book?
1: So a couple of things. I mean, it is definitely a book that helps us connect our own dots, meaning think about our own ethical consistency, think about how we might've reacted in the past and would we react differently today, Um, either because we've changed our outlook on life or because the world around us has changed so dramatically with everything from COVID-19 to technology to all of the world events, like what's tragically happening in the Ukraine. So so that's one aspect of it, but I always think of ethics as stories. And as you know, I've been saying for many years, my tagline is sort of that how well or not so well we integrate ethics into our decision-making determines our stories. And it also determines the impact we have on other people's stories whether it's our friends and family or whether it's people that we're influencing only indirectly because they might work in the same organization or some posting that we do on social media might end up forwarded to them. Um, So I definitely think about ethics as stories. And I, you know, the spirit of the book is, uh, is humility. I come out this saying, you know, I'm not here to give people answers. I'm not here to tell people what to do. I'm here to share a lot of uh, research, a lot of conversations that I've had, a lot of teaching that I've done and say, you know, maybe this will help you make the best decisions for you. And think about this in the way that is most comfortable for you.
0: I like that you brought that up. When I said answers, that is not accurate to it. It's more like, uh, this is a scenario. These are the ethical elements to it and uh, take from it what you will and then you choose. Right, and I
1: call it explorations and not answers, yeah.
0: Right, that's a key point. These things are very important points because that's the difference between it's a informing of this versus a here's information. Work with it as you are. That's more uh, receivable to the person. This is one thing that's uh, very relatable. Now, uh, ethics. How how much should the average person take into account during their day, and uh, after that, what are the what is your ethics basis that people should use for decisions that we have spoken about maybe before a framework?
1: Sure. So, you know, ethics is not going to be everybody's full-time job. We all have lives to lead. We have work. We have family obligations. We need time in our day for relaxation and fun. So my work is never about sort of belaboring every decision. On the contrary, as you just alluded to, Armin, that it's about making ethics a habit. And so years ago, I developed a framework that does borrow from philosophers and from um, other experts, but without without it being invisible to the ordinary person at all. Just four words. Um, and those four words are principles, information, stakeholders, and consequences. Um, and I'll just quickly run through them. But I can honestly say that anybody who reads one chapter of The Power of Ethics, even just the first chapter, or who um, sits through one of my talks or one podcast we'll so it will already adopt this as a habit without really any effort so principles in a nutshell are guides to our decision making and like everything else i believe that we should each choose our own principles whether each of us means as individuals or whether it means a company or a nonprofit organization so it's not laws it's not things like 25 miles an hour or no smoking It might be things like compassion or respect or accountability. Um, But we know we're on the subject of principles when we can hold ourselves accountable to behaving in accordance with them. So an example of something that isn't a principle in my view is Uber in the early days had what they called principles, but they were things like toe stomping or make magic. Well, it's pretty hard to hold yourself accountable for making magic. So we each choose our principles. I I usually say in advising individuals or organizations somewhere in the neighborhood of four to seven, we don't wanna have one or two, that's not quite enough. And we don't wanna start having 10 or 12. They should just be at the tip of our tongue. Uh, And the key thing about principles is that we um, commit to them. We don't sort of cherry pick and say, well, in this decision, it's really inconvenient to be respectful. So I'm just gonna put that aside and I'm gonna choose my other principles and apply them here. We really need to sort of apply them as a group. The next is information and uh, everybody is used to trying to collect information to make decisions. What I would just say is that in today's world, we need to focus on the gap. We need to focus on the information we don't have. We don't actually know, for example, what the mental health consequences are of a robot babysitter. We don't actually know um, a lot about certain aspects of the danger of facial recognition technology. We know some. We know that there is a risk of racial bias, which is terrible, but we don't necessarily know all of the risks. So we need to be more focused on what we don't know, um, instead of trying to make sure that we are, can know every little detail, because that's just not possible in today's world. Um, stakeholders, uh, I define stakeholders as anybody who's affected by our decision. But I also think that stakeholders can be things, and I get challenged on this, but something like, for example, an environmental policy can have a huge impact on our ethics and our ethics can have a huge impact on that. Um, Something like uh, how we deploy a robot or something like Amazon Alexa that might tell you, give you information that you're plugging into your decision that's accurate or inaccurate. So things can also be stakeholders in my view. And then finally consequences. And sort of the one takeaway from this I would give everybody is that we need to be thinking about the short, medium, and long-term consequences of our decisions all at the time of the decision. So what's happened is we've become sort of what I call serial short-termists. We'll look at our decision and we'll say, well, this is what's going to happen in the next few weeks. You know, it's not going to go that bad on Instagram if we if we, you know, in the next two weeks. But then we get to the end of the two weeks and we add two more weeks. Well in fact what we need to be doing is at the point of the decision, looking two weeks out, four weeks out, four months, four years, and in fact, asking ourselves, what is our decision going to look like to us if we look back on it from some future time? If we step out a year from now, whatever the outcome, whether it turns out to be the right thing or the wrong thing or external circumstances conspire against us and throw us off course, we can still find ourselves in a position where we like the ethics of our decision. Uh, And that's a, a sort of a question I always ask everyone to ask themselves, which is if you were to look back on your decision in a year's time, two years time, five years time, would you be proud of the decision, even if the outcome wasn't quite what you'd hoped.
0: As I am hearing and when I was reading your content, there's a nice after effect to it such that when you think about it in that way an hour later you feel better about yourself and like you're going to start going in a better direction because you're you're on a, a thought process that matches our reality which is we're not going to be missing in two weeks or three weeks most likely and so having that short view is always an error like two weeks away because we just didn't plan out beyond that when you're thinking in this way automatically you feel better it's a nice uh, little internal
1: feel this is about like i said it's about having stories that make us feel good about ourselves um and you're very right to use that word reality arm and i'm glad you mentioned that i do ethics based in reality i don't do la la land um and i tell my students all the time at stanford i you know i tell them you can do ethics outside of reality all you want but at the end of the day reality is going to come back to bite so i'm very very anchored in reality
0: that's a great thing. One thing is you had mentioned Uber, it made me think of, I've recently spoken with chief economist of Uber and now Lyft, but he's almost done, John List of University of Chicago. And he mentioned something that you also mentioned in your book, which in business and also in our own self, having guardrails of some sort. Um, Should we have ethical guardrails, like something that uh, we don't go underneath that as far as our decision-making, we always stick to this standard?
1: So everybody's guardrails are going to be different but there certainly are some uh and the way i would put it is that we need to tether our ethical decision making to our humanity there are some things that we just cannot do so to give you an example sort of in the current uh, debate um editing the genes of embryos many of us heard the story of a Chinese scientist, a rogue scientist, not somebody, you know, China is not advocating for his behavior. On the contrary, he was put on house arrest and a number of other things. Um, A rogue scientist who edited the genes of of embryos, twin girls. Well, that's something that affects the germline over time into other generations. And by and large, scientists do not think that that is an acceptable thing to do today, given what we know about the techniques uh, and given what we know about the risks. So that's sort of one guardrail. Um, You know, another is probably something along the lines of um, use of AI and just how much, uh, you know, around autonomous weapons that we really need to have. You'll see if you look across the many, I mean, well over a hundred sets of principles, as I mentioned the word principles earlier, uh, around AI, whether it's Google or OpenAI or other companies, you'll very often see, you know, have a human being in the loop And that's a kind of a guardrail. It doesn't give you a particular subject, but it says that we at least need to make sure that human beings are checking what's happening with the AI. So I definitely think that there are guardrails, Um, but I also think that we cannot be um, too uh, overconfident about the the negativity, about what I call negative ethics. Uh, As you know, I'm very pro-innovation and I'm pro-business. And I think it's very easy to have too many guardrails to say, oh, my goodness, you know, driverless cars have to be perfect. They have to be absolutely safe before we will use them. Well, that's very easy to say when you live uh, in places like London and Palo Alto, as I do. And we're very privileged to have good hospitals and rule of law and by and large people who you know, respect the road rules. But if you look in developing countries, um, and this is going to be an out of date statistic that I may have shared with you, but the World Bank published statistics a while ago that said something in excess of 90% of the deadly traffic accidents happen in developing countries that have only 50% of the world's cars. And why is that? It's because rule of law is not enforced. It's because the roads are poor quality and much more dangerous. It's because uh, hospitals and medical care isn't as available. So we have to be very careful that we're thinking broadly when we start putting too many guardrails on innovation, because uh, there's a balance between risk and uh, and you know missed opportunity is as much an ethics failure sometimes um, as ethics risk.
0: Missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. I always used to think about missed opportunity when I was reaching out to people in public. If I didn't reach out to them it'd be a missed opportunity but there's ethics missed opportunity as well Mm -hmm. I never like to leave something undone that would have been because you're the only person who would know that it was undone other people would just go on their way that's interesting it's our it's our personal element now what I would like to do is take one example from each section of your book and look at it in a little bit more detail so you have a variety of sections here you have your family and friends which is your local people you have politics community and culture which is a bit broader, then you have work, which everybody, most people have some sort of uh, relationship with their uh, fellow employees or their uh, bosses and whatnot. Technology, which we spoke about a little bit and is very key, I'm very focused on technology. Consumer choices, people's purchases and whatnot. And then health, that's a big one in the upcoming decade because health care, especially for the older individuals, which you have mentioned will become maybe half uh, double the population of older individuals within the next, I don't know what it is, something 10, 20, 30 years.
1: Right. and But also the healthcare, I mean, all of these, all of these topics will be of different kind of interest to different people, but certainly the work environment is under new pressure with COVID and questions that we didn't have before, like mandatory vaccinations and do I need to work in the office or future of work? Um, and as you say, healthcare particularly in the U S where we don't have something like the UK, we don't have a national health service that provides a safety blanket for, for the population at large. It's, it's a particular concern. Mm -hmm. I
0: have to add in unrelated, but I took notes all over in the book, which I hadn't done in like two years, actual pencil notes, which was a nice feature. And this book lends itself to that for anybody who's reading it. It's actually good for that. So one topic I want to cover in family and friends. So the question is, um, are you obligated to give all your children equal shares of your estate? How do you break that up to your individuals? What is passed on? What is not passed on? Some of the world's well-off people are being discussed in that way as far as what they'll, they'll leave to their younger uh, children or older children. What thoughts come into place? Ethics of that.
1: So this is a question that almost everybody faces, irrespective of our status in life. Now, you mentioned some sort of hyper wealthy people, you know, people like uh, Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos, people like that. I mean, those are people that are in a very different category from most of us, uh, and they are at a point where they can more than take care of their children and then leave extraordinarily substantial sums to other um, purposes. I mean, I think there are a number of questions that come into play for people. One is, do you have to treat each child equally? Uh, There are factors that come up such as, um, does a child have needs that that they cannot take care of that as a parent, you would continue to take care of even when they're an adult as a matter of your parental responsibility. So that might be something around mental health, might be something around even addiction, which is a terrible illness. It might be something around uh, physical health, Uh, On the other hand, you might have had children who spent 20 years taking care of you and were not able to work and were not able to go out and enjoy their life, and you might want to um, reward that. There are also um, certain items that might have particular value to a child, whereas they might have no value to someone else. Maybe it's a piece of jewelry. Maybe you have a child who plays the piano and you have a wonderful piano, and it would be silly to leave the piano to the child who doesn't play and doesn't appreciate music. So um, my basic position about our, um, our time, our possessions, uh, even our organs when we talk about health is that we don't owe anybody to give them anything. That we have free choice to make decisions. So I go through uh, some of the factors that might help you make a decision that's best for you along the lines of the ones that I just mentioned in the book, but every situation is different. Um, And this is one of the many situations where whatever uh, your decision is, it may be fraught with discontent. It may be fraught with jealousy and various other family reactions. But my bottom line here is that uh, you have uh, worked for whatever it is that you have, or you have however you have it, and it is your choice to distribute as you wish. Um, I do use an example that is a contrast in the book, Uh, the very famous French rock star, Johnny Halliday um, was subject to French law, which is this so-called Napoleonic code. And it's quite interesting because the Napoleonic code basically says that, you know, short of your child being an ax murderer, you have to leave your estate divided exactly among all of your children. And so he ended up in this rather high profile um, celebrity type uh, of situation where all of this ended up going to court um, with he had children from different uh, from different wives. But the bottom line is the Napoleonic Code says exactly the opposite of what I just said from an ethical standpoint, which is that down to your last handbag or pair of shoes, you must distribute your belongings and your wealth equally among your children. And it's the state that decides. And I, I personally think that's terrible. I think that takes away freedom. Uh, and I think we, as I said at the beginning, Armin, this is all founded on um, my belief that we are free to distribute uh, our time, our belongings, again, our organs in terms of how we donate organs um, as we wish. We don't owe anybody anything in particular.
0: I like seeing that theme uh, at various times in the book. I actually underlined it multiple times when it showed it because we don't owe X, Y, or Z. I like how one part you listed the many things we don't owe. This is true. And so if we see a dynamic in life where there's this thing and we just keep handing it out, but it wasn't good for us. There was no requirement that we had to keep handing that out. There's no owing of our, could be energy, could be time, attention, uh, could be giving people more weight than others for some reason. We don't owe per se. It's our choice. There'll be still maybe consequences, but it's not like uh, when we wake up, we suddenly have owing to do it. Or what
1: Right, I mean, you hear this sometimes from thoughtful celebrities, so one celebrity who's particularly thoughtful on this issue is Oprah, and you know, I've heard her speak up about the fact that people just assume that because she has more money than anyone could spend in a lifetime, she owes them to buy them a car or a house or whatever, and she most certainly does not. That doesn't mean she isn't free to do it, but she most certainly does not.
0: It's a great point, and also it's comical because like the same individual, if you switch them to their position, they'd suddenly be like, wait a minute. Yeah, that's true. Why am I just giving all this? And why did I put in effort? for? I'm getting like penalized for what I had. It's odd because, and then since she's in a minority or most are in a minority like that, uh, everybody else won't relate well because I don't know that experience. So I could just poke at it, but without, I would say without some uh, nice things out there or uh, standing of sorts, or something that has been built. What do we others? What do others have to aspire to or look to in any form? If we cut out all those elements and everybody just handed off, there'd be no.
1: Well, you know, the thing is also, I mean, like we're not, you know, most of us, myself included, we're not Oprah. We don't have that kind of fame. We don't have that kind of uh, financial wherewithal. But we all have certain things. We all have organs. We all have time. We all have, you know, most of us are blessed to have some material possessions that will come into question when it's time to decide um, a will. What I would say is that in ethics generally, in this question and in many other questions, clarity can be very helpful. So you don't necessarily owe anybody anything, but being clear about what your choice is, is very helpful, whether it's in a will or whether it's in a discussion with the family um, or, uh, you know, in different topics, it comes up in different ways. But clarity is very helpful.
0: Like this, Which requires some courage on some individual's parts to mm-hmm. say what they might have been omitting previously. Now, in the category of politics, community and culture, we have one that would be this would be discussed probably by many in the public domain because politics is always heavily covered on the Internet. Should there be age limits for U.S. presidential candidates? Should there be some cutoff point where, okay, Uh, Your ability is limited beyond this point and you have to be at least this age, which we have that. Where should the region be as far as our mental clarity?
1: So what I do again here is I gave um, the reader some things to think about and then obviously it's up to everybody to decide what they think. This has truly come to the fore recently because we've had two different presidents of two very different political uh, points of view who are on the older side. We had President Trump and we have um, President Biden. So let's be clear, this is a nonpartisan question and it isn't linked to anybody who is or has recently been in office. But it also applies more broadly to members of Congress. Um, We certainly have a number of very prominent members of Congress in the Senate who are, you know, well into their 70s, some even early 80s. We had the the absolutely formidable Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, who served brilliantly on the Supreme Court and survived various illnesses uh, and still managed to do so. So so it comes up in a lot of different ways. Um, There are a number of ways to think about this. One is, does age affect an ability to do the job? So there are some roles like, for example, surgeons, where manual dexterity, you know, there is research that shows that the kind of manual dexterity Vision acuity, this kind of thing, might not be the same at age 75 as it is at age 50 or 60. So many hospitals put limits on surgeons, for example. Airline pilots, same thing. Very high stakes, other people's safety is at stake, uh, requires an ability to react quickly, requires uh, really strong vision and hearing, uh, and manual dexterity in many cases, particularly in emergencies. Um, So there are those kinds of roles that very often do have age limits, either either legally mandated age limits or organizationally mandated age limits. Um, And then um, there are other arguments about the responsibility. For example, the President of the United States has responsibility for the safety and the lives of millions and millions of people, not just in the United States, but around the world. The decision of a U.S. President can have an impact on millions of people, as we've seen in you know in recent news but we've also seen over centuries um on the other hand one could argue that the president of the united states is very well surrounded that there are cabinet positions uh there are military leaders there are there's uh this you know this kind of um uh, checks and balances in our system of government with congress and the senate and the judiciary so the president of the united states doesn't need necessarily manual dexterity or even visual acuity Um, And there are lots of checks and balances and and, and expertise around the president. So those are some considerations. Um, To me, uh, I think what's important is that we know the truth about the capacity of the candidate. So knowing about the candidate's health is really important because that will tell us physical health and mental health, whether that person has the capacity to do the role at any age, by the way. I mean, it could be an issue at age 50. So to me, the biggest issue is around transparency of the health and, uh, and mental health condition of the president or the leader on an ongoing basis. I always say that ex- ethics is something to be monitored over time. Um, and uh, and you know, personally, I think that once we have that information, we can each decide for ourselves in voting, do we think the person has the uh, capability, irrespective of age? So I personally err on the side of a little more freedom. Let the voters have all the information they need, and let the voters decide who the best candidate is, including in terms of capacity. Um, But I, as as I say, those are some of the considerations that I put out there for the reader to think about.
0: That makes sense. When I was reading, I was thinking about it uh, biologically. Like at a certain age,s oxygen absorption drops off, and these things like as far as like I've seen graphs of at late ages, the chance of some sorts of like cancer might go up, it's drastically or things. So, mm-hmm. but it relates to yeah the the mental ability and uh, if they're still able to do what they're doing, then no worries there. That's fair. Now, the the third chapter, which was about work, a lot of these I related to relationships as well. Uh huh. My mind always goes to people in relationships and kind of dating. Uh, so I related it as well, but. That's a really
1: great question because everybody, I mean, you know, today, where do you meet people? I mean, sometimes people meet people on apps, um, but once you're out in the working world, you know, a lot of people meet their life partners at work.
0: Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that there. And even some of these, it's like, would you apply for a job that your friend is also applying for? You can kind of relate to, like, would you go and date somebody that your friend is also interested in? I did Mm -hmm. some analogs along the way, which Mm -hmm. is kind of cool. But in the category of for work this one was key because I thought about this in three different categories, but would you hire someone who has made a mistake and is looking for a second chance. What do we do in this category they've made an error could be large let's say it's a medium slash large error and they're looking for a second chance, what do we take into account in the workspace.
1: So this question really hits home for me because it, uh, it centers on a really fundamental principle of ethics for me, which is that we have to be able to be ethically resilient. We have to be able to make mistakes and recover. And that recovery requires telling the truth, the full complete truth, taking responsibility for it, really, and I mean really taking responsibility for our part in whatever went wrong, and then developing a plan going forward to make sure that we don't do it again. Um, There are a number of ways this can come up. Now I'm gonna leave aside the situation where someone has actually uh, been in prison and the system has said they have done their time, they have paid the penalty and they deserve a chance to get out of prison and, and start all over again. I think where we can, we need to think about the gift that we can give someone of a second chance. And how many times that we ourselves might need a second chance in life for big things or little things. Now, to be clear, a second chance is not a twenty-second chance. Once somebody has wronged you three or four or five times, and you have, and they know that it's wrong, they're intentionally wronging you. And at some point, you have to say no. You know, you knew that that wasn't okay with me, or you knew that was illegal, or you know, etc. And, and you don't keep giving them more and more chances. The other thing is we have to be realistic. There are certain kinds of errors that maybe we wouldn't put someone in any job. So if someone had a series of drunk driving events, maybe we wouldn't hire them. uh, We wouldn't let them drive for Uber. Maybe we wouldn't um, hire them as a driver in some other capacity or even hire them, for example, as a nanny who had to drive a lot. Um, If someone had real, uh, real background of sexual misconduct, I mean, there would be a lot of barriers around the kinds of environments in which you would put them. For example, you would not put them uh, in an environment where there would be elderly people, or there would be children, or young people. So, I mean, I think there are there are boundaries, but we have to find ways as a society to let people uh, rebound and rebuild. But again, as long as they're telling the truth, they're taking responsibility, and they really are committing to a plan. Um, now. That having said that, there are some people who, you know, and the employment system is very much skewed against that, Armin. So I'll give you an example that is that is um, that comes up all the time in my work. Somebody did something when they were, say, in college or in high school along the lines of making tweeting something that was racist. And somehow it brings it's brought to the attention of a new employer when they're, say, 25, 26, 30. And I've had situations where the employer said, sorry, we're withdrawing the job offer for a tweet or something that was sent you know, when they were much younger in a very different context. And the people will say to me, but I was raised in this terrible racist household. I'm not that person. I've studied. I've worked at this. I'm not that person anymore. There has never been another example of a communication on my part with racist content. And yet six, eight years later, major companies are saying, we won't hire you. To me, I think the companies and the organizations need to ask themselves again. I don't tell people what to do, but they should ask themselves if this is really the the kind of ethical courage they want to demonstrate, the kind of compassion they want to demonstrate, or if this is simply, um, as people put it often in London, covering their bum and thinking that they're you know that they're somehow protecting themselves from some risk. And, and honestly, I've been, um, if I may say so, I've been rather direct with some of the older, more my age uh, leaders who are making these decisions. And I've said, if I were to look back at what you did in high school and college, admittedly, we didn't have Twitter and we didn't have Facebook. So it was easier for us because our every wrongdoing was not reported on social media. But can you really look me in the eye and tell me you've never said anything that was offensive? you know that you never communicated to another person something that was offensive so um i really like that you chose this question because it gets at all these key issues of compassion and courage uh and also ethical resilience
0: it's how we look at individuals it can happen with relationships it can happen at work how far do you go to forgive somebody you let them go i like that you mentioned in the book that it um You may give them a second chance, but you don't, it's not like you're saying what they did was great. I forgot how it was worded, but
1: okay, that's such a great point, Armin. I'm glad you picked up on that. Giving someone a second chance doesn't mean condoning their behavior. You can still, on the contrary, you can still be very clear. I do not tolerate the behavior. I will not be treated this way in a relationship, or you know, we don't allow at work racist comments. We don't allow anywhere, hopefully, at racist comments from our employees. So whatever the boundaries are, we can still be clear that we are not condoning the behavior. In fact, we have to be clear that we're not condoning the behavior so that we're sure that the person is committed to a plan to avoid repeating it. Um, and the other thing I say is that, you know, uh, Armin, you may have heard in the, you know, you listen to so much and you speak to so many fantastic people. This word forgiveness comes up all the time. And I'm always fascinated because you know, philosophers and um, talk show hosts, really brilliant people, um, podcasters like you will talk about forgiveness as kind of uh, very often saying, well, forgiveness is for the forgiver. And I just wanna be clear here that I'm not talking about forgiveness. Very often it's not our place to forgive because we were not the one wronged. So if we are company X and we're about to hire someone Um, who, you know, did something in their past, had a drunk driving violation, stole something, posted a racist tweet, you know, terrible things that we never want to see. We're not in a position to, you know, to forgive. That doesn't even enter into it because we're not the, the, the party that was wronged, so to speak. We're just about making sure that the person is taking ethical responsibility and committing to ethical conduct going forward.
0: Yeah. They'd be like forgiving for someone else they'd be over there like wait a minute <laughs> this is for me to forgive that's funny i like that you uh, related that uh, in the category of bullying that you mentioned a few times there how mm. it's taken i like that you described um the features of bullying and what enables it it's almost like some of these elements of items that are not good you broke it down into what keeps it going or what's like the fuel for that category i like that because then i was like oh that's true when there's a bully for example have these features without these features it wouldn't work they would need to maybe have you be uh, subservient or they would need to uh keep it going on a consistent right well one of
1: the things about bullying is impunity right when there are no consequences when nobody reports it and nobody does anything about it or when it just spirals on social media that's why social media bullying is so toxic because once it's out there you can't really, you know, you can't really take it back. It keeps spreading. And there's just sort of no way to, to put an end to the contagion. Um, but there are a number of factors that keep this kind of wrongdoing going. And for sure, failure to report it um, that leads to impunity is definitely one. Um, power, you mentioned sort of different hierarchies, different sorts of power struggles, um, because that uh, very often is, is fear-based. Somebody is, you know, junior, they think they're going to lose their job or somebody doesn't want to report a friend being bullied because they think they're going to lose the friendship. Um, So, yeah, I do talk about various elements of bullying and and sort of, as you say, what keeps it going.
0: Before going to the next chapter, which is technology, I want to point out in the work chapter, there was an item about people taking credit for your work and boo to the individual that took credit for Susan's work at one time. And there's examples like that for all of us where someone is like, I'm going to grab that thing for myself. That was me yeah some of these examples made me think of the office there's some elements of the office where an episode almost commented on this issue in an indirect or comical way i
1: guess so i have to tell you that i'm sure the office is great because the the writer the you know the brain behind the office is is brilliant but i actually haven't watched it so i can't i can't speak to that
0: there's a lot of like some uh, there was quite a few things where i'm like this topic you mentioned, that was an episode. Then I went to like two topics over. That was almost an episode, kind of. So they, they they went and targeted this in an indirect way and kind of poked at it versus commenting on on it more directly. So I saw that. Yeah. Quote, so these
1: are actually things that I've um, seen in my own advisory work over and over. And I chose this set of questions because as you say, they're relatable. They're just happening to a lot of people in a lot of places.
0: Yeah, I will say the relatability is high on many of the stories that, Uh, Yeah, I was able to relate with a lot. This is wonderful. Now, chapter four, technology. I am highly into science and or technology. I add that in more science, but also uh, upcoming innovations and whatnot. In the category of technology, there is, I always think about social media and whatnot. Should they be, this is a nuanced one, but I thought it was relevant. Should they be required to offer users the option to pay a fee to avoid receiving targeted advertising, advertising, which is their, business model. Um, Why is that ethically a question? Should there be people that just get the free use of social media?
1: So this one is really important to me because as others have said, uh, social media may appear to be free, but it is anything but because they are monetizing in the very biggest way, our personal data and our personal choices. Um, and it's as simple as, you know, the other day I was looking for uh, a pair of gym shoes and now I can't seem to stop the ads <laughs> popping up from Nike you and, you know, and, you and Adidas and shoes? all the brands of gym shoes. And I just want to say to my computer, I already bought a pair. I don't need 10 pairs. pair of gym shoes. <laughs> right. So this comes up because um, Google and Facebook and some of these companies, uh, and, and I should say, I'm draw, I do draw a very, very important ethical distinction between Google and Facebook. That's a separate topic, but, um, but these companies monetize our data. And, so, and, and we sort of also have, you know, on a, as a minor point, these annoyances. We have ads that are popping up. We have our data going to places that we're not necessarily aware of. And um, so one question is, well, could we just pay And they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't give our data. They wouldn't use, uh, we wouldn't be sort of the victims photo, so to speak, of targeted ads. Well, what would happen there? One thing that would happen is um, that only people who could afford to pay a fee would be protected. So that many people would be forced to have this inferior service where they are targeted um, because they simply can't afford Uh, in the grand scheme of things, particularly in today's world of COVID world, etc., they just can't afford to pay the extra little bit to be exempt from targeted ads. Some people would say, well, you know, some people fly first class and some people have the inconveniences in economy class. That's just the way the world is. I think this is a little bit different because this really is about your personal data that is being made available to others. Um, But 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 it's a point. The other thing is that the data that these companies collect, uh, I'm hoping will end up in the public domain. And by public domain, I don't mean disclosing privacy. I mean made available to researchers who are serious, for example, university researchers. And there's a law that's under discussion right now. Uh, In fact, there's a Stanford colleague who's working on that um, whereby these collectors, these vast collectors of unique data sets that these companies are um, would have to make the data available to academic researchers, um, medical researchers, et cetera. That is for the benefit of society. If we had uh, different classes of engagement with these companies, you know, there's a possibility and I and I, and I don't know enough to know whether that would be the case or not, but there's a possibility that the data would be skewed, that you wouldn't necessarily have the same kind of engagement with everything from misinformation to, Uh, to data about sort of medical matters. So there's that. Um, But I think beyond that, there's the question of the misbehavior part of collecting data and making it available to other organizations and targeting people, the harassment side of it, the data privacy side of it, we should be requiring these companies to address that without having to pay for it meaning that they should be rethinking their business model. These are highly profitable business models. And maybe, you know, enough is enough in terms of profit. I'm very pro-business and pro-innovation, as you know, Armin. But maybe, um, you know, I guess my, my bottom line on this one is, yes, that's an option to ask some people to pay to be protected from targeted ads. But let's step back and tell these companies that they just need to do a better job Of protecting all of us from a data privacy standpoint, but also, frankly, from just an annoyance standpoint, um, you know, in the way they manage our data, without some people having to pay a fee and other people, um, uh, you know, and other people just having to sort of grin and bear it. And then the final thing I, I would say is that there are other models where companies pay for services for people who cannot afford it. For example, there are advertisements of medicine. Some pharmaceutical companies make medicines available at a lower cost. So that's another way of saying what I'm saying, which is instead of charging some people, just, you know, just let's rethink this business model.
0: And I was reading that one. At first I thought if there's a paid service to not be in the data and ad network, well, a lot of people would say, sign me up, which is the first thought, which is cool. But then you add in a next thought, which is what about the others and the effects of the data when you segment it like that. Mm -hmm. And then... It's almost like you're going to the next step that we've had this data decade or such of just proliferative data being uh, absorbed and used. And maybe the next step is it's now more of a baseline of everybody's data is used collectively. Let's move on to the next thing. This business model may not have the same applicability as it did in the prior decade. yeah.
1: I well, and sure. we, you know, when you say everybody's data is used collectively, um, it's one thing to have our data out there and used by academic researchers, for example, or data that is collected across the board by anybody who's admitted to a hospital and anonymized. I mean, there are issues with anonymization, but putting that aside and anonymized so that research can be done uh, and it's done across the board with all patients. It doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or paying or not paying or whatever. There's, you know, that's the goal that we should have. We should have, um, you know, but right now that's not quite where we are. We have these for-profit entities that control vast amounts of data um, and we have to put up with being targeted and not knowing where our data is until we sort this out.
0: Few groups that have it versus it's for the, the public of sorts. Now, onward we go to consumer choices, which is not a category I think about much, There's some categories I more resonate with, and this one is, but this is more of a public category because when I think about people who buy new shoes or consumer consumption is huge, it's huge. Uh, If I go outside, that's most of what's happening in public uh, malls and whatnot stores. The question on this one is, is uh, is purchasing organic food and products a more ethical choice? There's a lot of organic places that seem great, people like them, Uh, it seems good, Is it more ethical? Why would it not be?
1: So I mean, again, I'll just put some thoughts out there without sort of dictating a right answer. Um, There are positives with organic food for soil, for protecting farmers from pesticides and chemicals. And those are very important positives. Organic is very hard to understand. I give definitions in the book because it's a term that is tossed around. And if if one goes to a grocery store, we can see organic, uh, we see organic ingredients, we see every variation. And honestly, I have no idea what any of it means. What I do know, having spent a fair amount of time in grocery stores, especially during COVID because it seemed that that was sort of the only allowed outing. So masked up and gloved up and I would go and I would see, well, the peaches are, you know, $4.99 4 dollars a pound if they're organic and they are 2.99 dollars a pound if they're not. That's a lot of money. So um, my starting point is that organic should not be about guilt. Uh, nobody should feel that they're, you know, not feeding their children as well or that they're just sort of not ethical people because they don't buy organic. For many people, even the thought of buying organic is what I would respectfully call luxury ethics. People are having a hard enough time putting food on the table, and in particular, fresh food that tends to be more expensive, so the the fruits and vegetables um, and and various protein items. Uh, So this this should never be about guilt. Um, The second point is that I think if there's really a health difference, and there's different information about there, there's a lot of marketing around the health benefits, and certainly nobody wants to be consuming chemicals but there are also very credible scientific uh, sources that say that there really hasn't been a lot of proof that organic foods are much healthier. And my response to that is, if it's true that organic foods are much healthier, then the government should mandate in the way that the FDA mandates that we can't have certain additives in foods that we think are unsafe. If it's really a safety issue, then everybody should be able to be protected not just people who are wealthy enough to buy organic or indeed who are lucky enough to live near a place where organic things are sold. Um, And then I guess, you know, people do different things. There are some people like, you know, I really like the approach of um, I do a little bit. I do better if I think it's going to help the farmers. So maybe I buy organic vegetables, but not fruit, or maybe I'll buy you know, hormone-free milk and not the other thing, or you know. So people just pick and choose, and you know, every this is a just like fast fashion, just like fast food, just like all these things. For me, this is not about guilt, and it's not about perfection. It's about if we make an effort um, in things that we decide for ourselves are more ethical, then little by little, those efforts add up.
0: This reminds me of a theme as you're describing that that the binary is cut out. It's more Uh, A spectrum of sorts, and that reduces friction. So maybe somebody who wants to do that with food and get a little bit of items that seem more higher quality, a little bit here, a little bit there, and they might switch what they do. It's almost like when a person wants to exercise versus making a huge plan, they would make a plan to put on their shoes for exercise in the morning. And then most likely that will lead to some activity. There's a theme in the book of um, not making it so cut and dry and more what can be done that I noticed you represent. Would you say that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is not about perfection.
0: That's cool. Now in the last section of the book, which is health, long live keeping our health in good condition of sorts and longevity research is a big deal in this decade. I've talked to David Sinclair of the anti-aging Institute, and that'll be a big deal in keeping people healthier longer into their life or maybe reversing aging. There's a lot of questions and topics this decade that maybe 50 years ago wouldn't have even been considered. You had mentioned earlier gene editing and uh, embryos. Would you be in favor of editing editing the genes of human embryos? What should we look at there with that question?
1: So I am not in favor of editing the genes of human embryos. And uh, I want to be very clear here that I listen to the experts on this. I don't know of any scientists of repute around the world, not just in the US, who think that we are ready to be editing the genes of embryos uh, as a general matter. And just to be clear for everybody, because this is confusing, editing the genes of embryos means that those changes will be passed down the germline, they will be passed on to subsequent generations. That's very different from gene editing, for example, in an adult who might be a cancer patient uh, or who might have another illness, where the impact of the gene editing only affects the patient and can you know go towards uh, curing a disease or preventing a disease. It's a very different thing. Um, but I think we're not, you know, there, I don't know of any scientists to think we're ready for that. Uh, I, and I and I think we need to, we really need to listen to the scientists on that. And certainly we saw the reaction to this rogue scientist Ho Jin Kui in China that I mentioned earlier. And it was sort of universal condemnation.
0: I looked a lot at gene editing early on, and CRISPR, and Jennifer Duden's book, *A Crack in Creation*. Yeah,
1: yeah her book is wonderful.
0: Mm-hmm. I like this category because it says a lot. If you can alter people before they become people, that's a huge change that we never had before. In the current moments, this will be—I don't know how how current when this is published—but we have a let's say conflict or such of sorts in Ukraine. Um, without going too heavily into it? Are there any ethical issues at play in the moment? Or is that out of place when there's military and battles going on?
1: Well, first of all, ethics is never out of place in any human endeavor. So I always say that we tether our decision making to ethics, we tether our ethics to our humanity. And that is at play in the military. And by the way, military academies have very intensive ethics courses. They're more military ethics. Um, They're more specialized than I would like, but um, absolutely at play here. But there's one broader theme uh, without going into the detail of of exactly what's going on. um, There is one broader theme here that I think is very important. And that is threats to democracy around the world and the rise of authoritarianism and both link to what I consider to be one of the foundations of ethics, and that's truth. Authoritarian leaders manipulate the truth. They create narratives that are designed to manipulate people's behavior, and they are very often not grounded in the truth. Um, Democracy, by definition, needs truth. It needs information. Uh, It needs people to vote on the basis of informing themselves. That's why we have sort of classic tools such as debates Um, All that is designed uh, around truth. And what we've seen uh, with this, the threat to truth in recent years, the the rampant misinformation online, um, the willingness of politicians and and other leaders to compromise on truth, all of this is a huge threat to democracy. And um, that is definitely playing into this, in my view, and is part of a larger global scene, this rising authoritarianism and threat to democracy. And that is 100% ethics laden, because it is 100% linked to how committed we are to truth.
0: The misinformation topic you just presented was also mentioned by, uh, well, Mark Zuckerberg did an interview recently and he talked about how Professor Genskow at I believe Stanford had many papers on misinformation in the recent years and how it's like, change the look of what social media should be or can be it's like one of the strongest elements of the past half decade that everybody is discussing whereas 20 years ago Mm -hmm. it was much less discussed that is this the truth that we're getting and now every day if there's videos coming out it's a question of is this an actual video was this a made-up video it's more hefty than it was
1: oh definitely because as you say the technology is changing so you know 10 years ago we were not talking about deep fakes you know, so the technology is adding to it. But at the end of the day, if we don't post falsity and we don't read falsity or spread falsity or like falsity, then we're limiting, you know, we're sort of taking the oxygen out of it.
0: You mentioned that in the book with the Supreme Court having like difficulty keeping up with or they mentioned even that keeping up with truth is I mean, keeping up with uh, technology in their papers is a challenge, because as soon as they publish it, it's a huge years.
1: challenge. It's a huge Absolutely. challenge. And again, because you know, and in the or in, early in our conversation, I was talking about my framework for ethical decision-making and this word consequences. Well, the technology, it is very hard to think out medium and long-term of the consequences of some of this technology that we barely understand the power of.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that in a way, I see your work as a way to um, combine time with what's happening currently such that we don't do things that are very uh, staccato when it should be more of a Mm -hmm. flowing connection to the future that will be here. One thing I, I would want to check is what would be a message you would want people to take away from this book here or something you'd want them to come out with or what sense would you want them to come out with from after reading?
1: Well, let me just say that this book is an invitation to join the conversation. Um, and explore your own views. And I would love to hear from anybody who reads if you have views on any of the questions. Uh, you know, did you do you think I missed anything? Do you what are your thoughts on some of these questions? And, and share the book, pass it around. It's a very small format. It is designed to be shared and um, used almost as a, as a puzzle, as a conversation starter. Um, so enjoy.
0: This is a wonderful message represented in the book and within ourselves. Susan Lioto. I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show, describing a bit about ethics, your recent book, and explaining some of the questions that I had related to topics you presented.
1: Armin, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody who listened.
0: Wonderful. And
1: we are out.